0: Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my
1: soul. Uh, I'm trying to start with, um, but every time I think. <laughs> every time about you open it, your I, mouth, Because um, like, uh... I'm automatically thinking what I have to say. Uh. <laughs>
2: wow, that's quite a tick you have there.
1: A verbal tick. Yeah. Do you know that? Did you watch Modern Family this week? I believe so. Was it a repeat? No, it was last week. Not this week, not this Wednesday, but the Wednesday before. Well, anyways, If you recognize the story, you obviously watched it. The wife, I can't remember her name, the, the main wife in this story, the show, has a tick where she laughs. Oh, yeah, where she, she smiles. smiles. I missed the very beginning, but the kid's friend dies or something like that.
2: Yeah, it was the old neighbor
1: next door. And was it a young kid? No, it's it, an old old man. So, a man, okay. Yeah. The old neighbor dies, and then she is worried. The whole show's premise is about her worrying about the kid not being uh, emotional enough about the the loss of a friend or the yeah. loss that of death. So he's not taking you know life seriously or whatnot. She's because yeah, he it's just it. she set, she announces to the son that. The neighbor died, and he just wants to go back to playing video games. Doesn't really care. Anyways, um, when she tells the kid, she smiles, and they don't really—they don't really address it at the beginning. But the husband's just like, "Why'd you smile when you told?" You know told our son that the guy died. And then throughout the story, every time she brings it up, she laughs or smiles.
2: And she can't help herself. Yeah.
1: And I totally... I do the same thing. I really do. And I do it with almost all bad situations. And I'm not even going to think... I mean, because it's it's embarrassing. Like... I mean, I I think I've told you about it once before. Like... And it's... Because people will think you're being rude. And it's really... I don't know if it's a defense mechanism or... But like... I mean really bad situations where like like I remember specific situations where you've come to me and told me something really bad that's happened and I smile and ask for more and I know I'm smiling Like, I, I, mean, I'm, I, like noticed I know that I'm smiling and I know it's inappropriate as all can be but I cannot stop like I've made myself get out of the other room and leave because it's not that I think it's funny at all it's such a like it's The true definition of a tick because you can't stop doing it
2: they say the best humor comes from personal tragedy i guess maybe it's the same thing maybe you should have been a stand-up
1: maybe because you can laugh at the face of in the face of pain it's true whether i want to or not (laughs) and it's not that i think it's funny though it's weird because it's (laughs) i don't think it's funny at all i don't think any of the the scenarios are funny and people would generally get offended and I, but I can pull it together to talk about it. Like I've given eulogies before and I've given, you know, serious talks like that before and I've been able to pull it together. But the instant, like the instant, when you find out about something bad that's going on or, you know, that initial shock, I treat with a smile instead of a, Oh my gosh. Like I always smile. And then it's like, people are like, what's your problem? <laughs> and we just told you this terrible thing and you're smiling. Anyways. Um, so, whatever. I, uh, w- because we had a recorded Like David Project this week, and there was some uh, issues with the microphone, so we wanted to get something out there anyways. So me and Matt have uh, decided to go ahead and wing it for today. There's a scripture verse in the Bible that's been kind of been joked around in the office the last couple of weeks that Matt had discovered during devotions. Um, and we thought it'd be... Uh, interesting nonetheless to, to dig deep into it and to talk about it. So I'm going to go ahead and have Matt read it.
2: All right. I'm going to read from second Kings chapter two, verse 23 to 25. And it, it strikes me as one of the most peculiar and therefore interesting to me, Bible stories that, that I've discovered recently or rediscovered. maybe I've read it before. I, I don't remember. Really? Um, you think if you read it once, yeah. you would remember? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but I've read I've read through the I've read through the whole Bible before, and it didn't jump out at me last time.
1: I have too, with because I went to a Christian Academy, so we went through it in school, you know, through my elementary years, and I do not know how that slipped by. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Let's read it, and then and then we'll talk about it. And even just reading it, I'm reading out of the NIV version, which is which is, of course, a very trusted translation of the original language. But but you'll see why this story jumps out just as I read it. So 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23-25, if you want to find it for yourself. From there Elisha went up to Bethel, and as he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy, they said. Get out of here, baldy. And he turned around and looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And then he, Elijah, went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. What an awesome story. (laughs) (laughs) In some translations, actually, because the original Hebrew language indicates that the bears were females, Some translations just say that two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled the boys. The Message Bible even says, ripped the boys' limb from limb.
1: The she-bears ripped the boys' limb from limb. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Get out of here, Paul D. Now, okay, so here's why I find this story interesting. There are people that say we should take the Bible literally. And if you do that, that's a very hard story to understand. Because... What it sounds like is that Elisha used his powers as prophet of the Lord to Mm -hmm. take vengeance upon those boys. In fact, how would you describe, like, just hearing what I read, John, how would you describe that story transpiring? Like, after having heard it in English, replay it. Describe it in your own words.
1: First off, it sounds like the beginning of a good joke. Um, I would describe it as... A bald guy was made fun of by some kids and summoned God to sick them with she bears and ripped them apart. And I don't think there's any other way you could spin it, you know? (laughs) Like, like I don't know of any other way to describe it because it's pretty straightforward. It's black and white. Exactly. You know, there's a there's
2: a, a Bible online called the Skeptics Annotated Bible, which is and it's in English. I think they might use the King James translation if I if I'm right and maybe I'm wrong. But what they do is they go through the Bible line by line and try and point out things that they believe are inconsistencies or strange or weird, and they love this story. Because it, because of what it
1: proves, or just the comical.
2: Just well, because it, it, yeah, because it makes it makes Elijah look petulant, and it makes God look vengeful, and and it's and it's completely unjustified right. for forty two boys, little children. In fact, the the King James version actually uses the phrase "little children"
1: from the wow. nearby
2: village. It it makes it, it makes the. It makes God seem extremely vengeful and petulant to, to seek revenge on 42 children for calling the prophet bald. Right. And it seems like a huge abuse of power for Elisha to use his prophetic powers to summon she-bears from the woods. Does it
1: say, I mean, I'm sorry, for, does it say he summoned them? Or did God just do it? No, it doesn't. On his own?
2: Well, that's one thing. That, that's the way it's described. That that's true. That's one one way that this story story is spun, is to say that Elisha summoned bears out of the woods, and he doesn't. He says that Elijah cursed them in the name of the Lord, and then two bears come out of come out the of the woods. So the prompting for the bears is, appears to be God, not not Elijah, but God in response to what Elisha says.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: Now, is it fair Is it fair for 42 children to be mauled by two bears for calling somebody bald?
1: I can't think of any situation where it is. No. No, it's not fair.
2: I can't think of one particularly either. And should we really get that offended by being teased?
1: No, especially <laughs> if you're just being bald. Right. It, right. It's funny, though, to think that. Some of the things that were teased about today were teased. I mean, it was, still was relevant thousands of years ago. Right. And, I mean, I mean, it probably was, but just to see it written historically—that you know, this guy was made fun of for being bald—it's pretty kind of relevant, I guess. Anyway. Right.
2: Right. Right. Yeah, we still suffer. <laughs>
1: we still suffer from <laughs> being bullies,
2: jeered. Yeah, for being bald. Yeah. Yeah, that that charge could be leveled at, at any number of four square pastors. Have you noticed that there seems to be a disproportionately high number of four square pastors that are bald?
1: Yeah, now I do. But you brought it up. Now that I mention it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: I don't. I don't mean it in a at mocking in way. Life. I mean I'm not. I don't summon bears to to maul me because I say that. I've just noticed. <laughs> it's just an observation. Uh, a lot of four square pastors are bald.
1: At least in my. History of Foursquare. Yeah, I would say eighty percent bald.
2: Eighty <laughs> percent <of> the eye.
1: <laughs> yeah, seriously. Even outside of you know, like our district and whatnot. Yeah, growing up in California before I met you guys, bald.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm not bald, but members of my family are,
1: which makes it relevant. My grandfather's bald, I and mean, my grandfather's an awesome guy. He's grew up. He's he's pretty much one of the very few Christians in my family and was a huge influence on in my life and he's known for being bald. He's been bald since he was a young man and um, he used to wear a t-shirt that says, how to it go? Um, I used to think it was hilarious. God made, o- God made only so many perfect heads. The rest he had to cover up and he totally wore a t-shirt around everywhere. <laughs> That's great. Because he like embraced his baldness. That's great. but Regardless, so, do you believe that okay now let me I mean, these seems like obvious questions one because it's written in the Bible, you believe this has happened this happened on earth, yes, okay, I do Two, believe this happened why do you what is the reasoning? why would God commit those acts
2: well, here's what I think is interesting about this story. The superficial literal reading of this in English, I think paints a completely wrong picture of what's actually taking place here so somebody picking up their bible and reading this in english i think would come to the logical conclusion that god is vengeful and has no sense of humor
1: oh i think the opposite on the second half god's vengeful and has an incredible sense of humor (laughs) (laughs) because you're amused by the she bears (laughs) but i get what you're saying yeah
2: (laughs) But see, and that's why I find this story so fascinating is somebody can pick this up and they can say, look, this is what the Bible teaches. This is the kind of God that you serve. But the truth is, if you spend any time at all looking into to the context of, of how this is written, of the original language that it was written in, and of what was actually being communicated in the Hebrew, and don't, this portion, let's remember, of the, of the scriptures was written originally in Hebrew and translated into English. If you bother to take the time to research the context and the grammatical content of what's in this story, it actually means something almost completely different to how it reads in English. And that's why I find these sort of things interesting, because that is a common... Problem with anyone that criticizes the Bible. They will take something in English, they will remove it from its context, remove it from its grammatical origins, and they will say, see, doesn't this show that God is vengeful or doesn't exist or, or changes his mind or whatever? Mm-hmm. But the true, true biblical research and study shows that with just a little bit of, of insight... Um, you can come at this, these kinds of stories completely differently, and you don't have to worry about about what it says about the character of God. In fact, it means something totally different. So uh, let's, let's look at this, and I'll, I'll just point out a few things that I think are completely relevant to this story. First of all, if you're not aware of who Elijah was, he was a prophet of the Lord. He was the successor to Elijah. Hmm. who the two of them are synonymous with being prophets of the lord and they were operating in the nation of israel the northern kingdom of israel at a time when people had abandoned worship of god even though god had rescued them from slavery had established them in their own country they had pretty much been led astray by a succession of evil kings worshiped false gods and elijah and elisha the two of them, over a course of, I think it's something like 60 to 80 years, that the two of them operated as prophets. Um, I can I can double-check the facts. But they they spoke almost as lone voices, speaking against the evil that was around them and promoting worship, true worship of God. And that's important to this story. Because when it says that Elijah went up to, to Bethel, um, that town... Even though the the name Bethel means house of God, at that time in history, that town had a notorious reputation for being evil. It was a hotbed of sinful activity, of people that um, actively opposed the work of Elijah and Elisha in trying to reestablish true worship in Israel. So Elijah, sorry, Elisha in this case, he was passing a place that was notoriously evil that stood in direct opposition to the work that he was trying to do as a prophet of the Lord. For that reason, this story, actually, we should read it with a little bit more of a sinister, threatening edge, because he wasn't just going from one town to another. He was going, heading towards a place that was evil, that was that was bound to take opposition to what he was saying. So we should read this and recognize that there there is the potential for a great threat against the prophet because of where he's going. Mm-hmm. And I think that changes the tone of of the story a little bit and it's important. And then the second part is that there's a word that's translated into English as little children or boys, little or even youths sometimes, youths came out of the town and began to jeer at him. What's important to note here is that, is that that word can be used for anybody in Hebrew. The word that's chosen can be used for anybody that's under the age of 30. So even though they, it is possible that they were little children, it could be that they were men up to the age of 29 as well. That term youth that's applied there is used of Joseph when Joseph was in prison um, a captive of the Egyptians and he he was somewhere between the age of 18 and 25 when he was captive in in prison right in that right in that age range at least at least that's what's thought so that term youth although we it is a good translation of the word the way that it's used in Hebrew is not the same as the way that we would use the word boy or youth here and so we have to at least give that that possibility that these were young men. We might use the term young men as opposed to youths in this case.
1: Can you say that's a good current translation if it actually means young men? Wouldn't a good translation be Satan, young men instead of children?
2: Well, there's two ways to translate the Bible. One is to translate it word for word. So you take the Hebrew word and find the, the the English equivalent, so in that case, the word could be boys or youths and the, but there 's a second way to translate which is called to, which is really to transliterate, which means to to translate it thought for thought instead of word for word and so the translations that use the term "youth are attempting to to use more of a thought for thought translation whereas those that use boy or child are translating more literally word for word. Neither one is right or wrong. It, it's almost a case of preference. Right. But you have to understand, you have to look beyond the English and understand the Hebrew. And th- I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm willing to use a tool like Blue Letter Bible, for example, online, right. that that explains what the original
1: words well, mean. Today's today's world, you don't have to be a scholar to... Figure stuff like that out. Yeah, I mean, just what you figured out there. You, you can. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. You can't figure out on the internet just by going to a place like Blue Letter Bible um, or a you know some kind of biblical reference or even language reference that goes you know into the actual language that the Bible was using, um, which seems to be a lot of times there's more to find out. I mean, I hear references to Hebrew and Greek and the meanings behind the words that were originally used definitely expand on the meaning of what God is saying to us through his word. Um, yeah. So, I mean, a story like this, again, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't black and white. It's not, you know, it's something, I know it's a comical story, but it's not, there's more to take in thought this is i mean my initial translation is about a bald guy that gets up and some kids make fun of him and god calls down sheep bears like i mean right. that, that's funny but another way to look at it is god's prophet was going into an evil place and he protected him you right. know from angry men right so i mean that's not black and white
2: no it's not black and white and that's the problem with anybody that, that that does take a very hard line stance, what we would call fundamental stance. A fundamentalist is someone that that believes in a literal understanding of the Bible, but unfortunately, because we 're not Hebrew scholars, what we 're basing that fundamentalist approach on is the English translation,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which is limited. Mm-hmm. It, which is what you're saying. There can be more to it than just what's written. In fact, you, you could even argue when we say that the Bible is infallible and it doesn't make any mistakes. What, when I say that, I'm thinking of the original language of the Bible. Mm. That is infallible. But, but given the fact that you can translate that word into different ways, you, you're on a little bit shakier ground claiming that any one English translation is infallible. Really, you have to take every English translation together, amalgamate them into something like the Amplified Bible, which is actually the point of the Amplified Bible is to try and give every possible explanation mm-hmm. for for a word in any given situation. Mm-hmm. But then it becomes hard to read; it becomes difficult to you know to stand upon. Right. But yeah, there there is a there is a problem there. If you if you believe in translating the Bible literally or taking the Bible literally, you there are times when you come up against a difficult story like this and it's hard to explain and we've i think we've talked about this before in a podcast but i don't take a literal approach to reading the bible i read the bible in a, as a literary form which i think is a slight distinction in words but it changes the meaning because when i when i say i read it as a literature not literally I mean that I read the portions that are historical as if they were historical. I read the portions that are poetic as if they were poems. I read the portions that are that are um, uh, written as pastoral letters. I read those as pastoral letters. And I don't try and extrapolate too far beyond that. Mm. And the poetic one is the most obvious. If something is a poem, it can use symbolism to describe truth without being literally true itself. Mm-hmm. Just as we do in poems this to this day mm-hmm. and so uh, it depends on your approach to how the Bible is supposed to be read, um, how you understand these things, and what you mean by terms like the Bible is infallible.
1: This could be a really good introduction into how to read the Bible, yeah, future <laughs> podcast alert <laughs> or your sermon I know you want you want to put this in a sermon, but
2: at some point, yeah, yeah, maybe.
1: Or wanted to. Let's
2: let let's go through the story a little bit more because there's more that I think it, it, it reinforces the idea that actually what's happening here is Elisha is in a very dangerous situation and God's taking an extra special care of him. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we read it with more of an understanding of the original language, Elisha is, is in a very dangerous situation and some young men are jeering at him and then their jeer at least in the niv says get out of here baldy so they're making fun of him being bald mm-hmm. let's let's talk about the bald the bald thing first some people think that elijah was bald and they were making fun mm-hmm. of him and he was young here right He was, yeah, he was probably, he was, he was middle-aged probably. And so if he was bald, he might, you might call it premature baldness, in which case they're making fun of his physical description.
0: Mm.
2: Now that's, we know that's bad. Like if we, if our kids get bullied at school because of their physical appearance, we Mm. know that there's a problem. It's not a problem that you would kill 42.
1: Summon she bears.
2: Bullies. Yeah. Yeah. But Definitely it could be they're they just making to. fun of him for being bald. But I have heard at least one commentator suggest that what they're actually making fun of is the fact that Elisha might have been wearing a keppa or a yamlka. Some people know it better as a yamlka, that, that head covering that the Jewish people uh, wear on the tops of their head, which may, gives them, at least from a distance, the appearance of being bald. Mm-hmm. And as a prophet of the Lord, there is a good chance that he had his head covered in, in response to the, to the law of God. So there is at least a warrant for suggesting that perhaps what they were making fun of was his position as a prophet. A posi- his position as a true worshiper of the Lord. Mm-hmm. They are rejecting him as a prophet and making fun of the fact that he is underneath the covering of the keppa. And the keppa is, is just meant to be like a symbolic reference to placing yourself under the covering of the Lord. That's why they wear it on their heads. They're they're symbolically placing themselves beneath the Lord's covering.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So then you start to see that what could be happening here is they're actually directly challenging Elisha's position as a prophet of the Lord, making fun of it, mocking that. And then their threat, in the NIV it reads, get out of here. But in most translations it reads, go on up, go up, go out of here. And you have to remember that this story happens immediately after Elijah, who was Elisha's mentor and senior partner in the profiting business, that profiteering, that's the wrong word, isn't it? The prophetic business. Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it ha- this story happens immediately after Elijah is taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. Mm-hmm. And so when they're saying, go on up, it's actually a threat. They're essentially saying to him, Are you ready to go to heaven?
1: We're going to send you to the afterlife.
2: Yeah, we're going to send you to heaven whether you're ready or not. Go Mm -hmm. on up. It's time for you to go join Elijah in heaven. And so I think it would be a legitimate reading of this threat to say that this group of young men is actually posing a direct threat against the life of Elijah himself. Mm -hmm. They're jeering him as a prophet of the Lord, and they're threatening to send him to heaven to join Elijah
1: now, um, is there, do you have any insight on why God may have used female bears? No. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of sense of humor?
2: Um, maybe may there were two bears nearby.
1: And they just happened to be.
2: Yeah. And it was by bears. divine providence that the bears happened to be there.
1: Is there a Hebrew term for she bear? Have I guess the word
2: that? itself has, I think it has both a masculine and a feminine form. Although we know that mother bears are can be extremely uh, violent if their cubs are threatened. So maybe this group of men I, now are really reading into the Bible something that is unnecessary, however. Um, but she bears can be particularly dangerous when
1: cornered. <laughs> is Can you think of any, is there anything else, I'm kind of putting on the spot, but is there anything else, that, any other stories in the Bible that come to mind that, may be used by a skeptic as of this one, not saying comical, but something that... Because this looks... I mean, you take away the comedy of a bald and she bear and whatnot, which is funny to us in our society, but is there anything else in the Bible where it's like, ah, that's not right? You know, like, because that... I mean, you take away all the comedy of that. That seems like a story that is unjust. um, You know, especially on the... the, um, the first layer of what you're reading is kids being killed for making fun of somebody, we've obviously discussed what could have transpired there and how, you know, a a deeper level of the story. But is there any other stories in the Bible or any other, I don't want to say stories, but any other um, thing that, recollection in the Bible of of a verse like that or...
2: Uh, Although I I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head, I can speak in in generalities on this point because there's a lot of criticism leveled at the Bible that the Old Testament in particular depicts God as some kind of vengeful dictator. Um, And there's stories like when the children of Israel were invading um, the promised land, the land of Canaan and Mm -hmm. capturing it. You know, there's stories like at Jericho, they were instructed to kill everybody, leave no survivors, mm-hmm. kill all the livestock, don't take anything for yourself. Um, and, and there, there's a, a, a large segment of the um, anti-Bible establishment, the skeptical establishment that looks at those things and, and uses terms like genocide the to describe... The flood, yeah, would be yeah the flood, the story that we teach our kids is really a story of millions of people drowning yeah. uh, because they didn't they didn't meet god's expectations um, yeah there's there's numerous stories, a lot of it comes out of the Old Testament, New Testament criticism tends to be over um, seeming contradictions in the text, like you take your four gospel accounts and one story might say that there were two two men walking along the road, and one one version might only mention one man. And there appears to be a you know disagreement about how many people were there. And if you can't even get the facts straight, how do we know that we can trust the story? Mm-hmm. Uh, but New old Testament criticism tends is often along the lines of how can we how can we trust a God or even like a God that's willing to um, order the deaths of thousands of people at a time. And those are those are difficult things with our mindset to understand in fact, on this last Sunday, I spoke about one of those in in church right. too, when we were talking about the story of Elijah and the the contest that he had with the prophets of Baal, and how their God was silent because he didn 't exist, and, and God accepted elijah 's offering and burned it up and Then it says that Elijah went out and killed the four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal. You know, and people read those kind of things and they think what what's up with that why right. why is God so mean i'm one of them <laughs> yeah and it, it th- that can be a struggle sometimes to understand
1: is there an easy answer
2: no there's not an easy answer there's there's answers that uh, range from um, those were different times back then, and we shouldn't expect people to have the same Um, mindset that we do today, and we shouldn't hold them accountable to our 21st century moralistic mindset. Mm -hmm. We can't superimpose our principles and our morals onto society. There's some that use words like barbaric and primitive to describe those older cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some uh, answers that say, look, God is justified to do whatever God wants to do. There's some that invoke the idea of grace, that since Jesus Christ has come, we live in the era of grace, and those kinds of events just don't happen anymore because God operates differently. There's lots of different answers, and I think all of them can be valid I, at sometimes to help us understand. But of all of those, I think probably the most important one to understand is that we experience life now differently than they did back then. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was a watershed moment in the history of the earth mm-hmm. where everything changed. Mm-hmm. And we have benefited from living in the freedom and liberty of God's grace. Where His punishment is delayed for the sake of giving us the chance to experience His grace. Mm -hmm. And we have experienced that grace for so long as cultures and as societies that it's had an influence. And there is less violence done around the world now than there was before Jesus death. Now there's still great violence, don't get me wrong, and I and I think that we need to be aware of that. There is huge violence done around the world, even sometimes in the name of Jesus. But there's a lot of studies to suggest that we are more advanced now than we were before 2000 years ago. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, it speaks of the progressive nature of of understanding who Jesus is and what he did. The fact that women are more free now today than they were in the day of Jesus is an outworking of his new creation being put into effect, that people are considered equal and free. Now not everybody on the planet has experienced the benefit of that, but we're moving in that direction overall as a whole. And the same thing can be applied to these stories. We we experience the grace and the mercy and the liberty of Jesus Christ, but we can't then project that back four or five thousand years and say, well, why didn't they understand it? Or why didn't they operate the same way? Well, they didn't because the world was a different place back then. And it was more violent, it was more brutal. Life was not held in as high regard. Um, certainly not if you if you remove if you take go outside of the community of of uh, the nation of Israel and the true believers in Yahweh who did teach the sanctity of life. If you go beyond the influence of that, life didn't mean a whole lot to most people. So, the, I, I think that those arguments together point to a true reality that the world is dramatically different since the death of jesus christ and we need to be honest enough to recognize the difference and i don't think it's a matter of them being more primitive or barbaric i find those terms rather ageist if you if you get what i mean you know they they assume that we're better than they were because we're modern and they weren't i don't think that it's just more informed. It's just different. It's just right. th- we have access to a different way of, of thinking now because of we look back on Jesus Christ.
1: I've always wondered. And I don't. This may sound um, like I don't know much, but the um, I believe the same thing when Jesus. You know, the since the New Testament, things have changed, and I know there's things in the Old Testament like things in the book of Leviticus and whatnot, that we don't follow, the rules that we don't follow, (laughs) Um, now, that don't apply because of the New Testament. Now, what, like the Exodus and, and the Ten Commandments, is that, is the Ten Commandments applicable today? I know it's applicable and it's a good thing to live by, but is it, I mean, is it God's rule today, even
2: I think it is in the sense that things like the Ten Commandments and the law given to Israel, they, they point to principles
0: mm-hmm.
2: that are eternal principles. Mm-hmm. And I think that we benefit from studying them and understanding the point, you know, the principle behind the point that's being made, if you mm-hmm. get what I mean. <laughs> right. And I think those things, those principles Remain in effect throughout all of creation, um, let me give you an example too, uh, uh, although it's going back to what I've been talking about um, violence and grace. We live in an era of grace, but the Old Testament, although it 's accused of being violent, is actually quite grace filled at the same time because there are severe punishments laid out in the book of law in the in the Torah. Of how people should be treated based upon their actions. Right. But the stories show that God withholds his judgment on his people. And now there are occasions when people are get killed because they violate one of God's commandments. Mm-hmm. That that is absolutely true. There's also those stories in the New Testament too. There's a story of when I forget their names, but we could look it up, when two people bring their offering to the to the apostles. But they've withheld some of their money. And Peter says to them, because you've withheld it, God's not happy. And they, they fall over, get a keel over dead. So there, you know, there is a principle that if you violate God's commandments, it does have an effect on your, on your body, on your physical body, and, it, and it, it will result in your death. But the story of the Old Testament is that even though people, like in the days of Elijah, people were constantly violating the commands of God, but they did not drop dead. Mm-hmm. God, God was gracious enough to send them a prophet to try and turn them around, to give them the chance to repent. And so if you, you can read the Old Testament with a more grace-filled attitude as well and recognize that although some of these commands are very strict, God has always operated with a measure of grace. Mm-hmm. And so in the same way, we take things like the Ten Commandments, like the Le- Levitical commands, and we recognize universal principles, but we the enforcement of those has to be done with mercy, grace, and, and love, I think. Is that a yeah. good enough answer? <laughs> no, it is.
1: I think that's good.
2: There's a little more in the in the story, I think, if we turn back to it. Um, the last point that I was going to emphasize here is that Elijah, in response to the, th- the visible threat against his life curses the young men in the name of the Lord. And I, that word curse is interesting because in our culture, what we tend to think of is, is like witchcraft, like a hex or something, you know, a yeah. curse that's placed. And it's worth noting here that um, the the word curse in Hebrew has a slightly different connotation than we might have in, in English. And curse in Hebrew is the opposite of bless, and those, the blessing or cursing is a very common term throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. And it's always in relation to God's commands. So basically, if you, if you keep God's commands, then you are blessed. If you violate God's commands, you are cursed. And so it's not like he was putting a hex on these young men or summoning the bears himself. He was actually pronouncing vocally that they they were violating God's commands, that so they had fallen short of what God intended, that they had missed. Understood, and these were men uh, from Israel that should have known better. These are men that should have right. grown up knowing the Lord and knowing what what the the old the the Torah said, you know, the the books of the law, and yet they had abandoned all of that. And so they were being pronounced as having
1: fallen short of God's commands. So being cursed could be like saying you're cursed is doing something wrong. It can almost be a verb. Um, it, it's like it's related to the term punishment.
2: If you violate God's commands, you are, will be punished. And so in that sense, it's almost like a warning. if you, You're going to be punished. <laughs> and a blessing is more of a reward. If you do what God says, you'll get a reward. And that reward is not financial. That's the that's topic for another Bible, another kind of like, podcast. But
1: right, financial. Uh, no, but like blessed, like doing the right things in life and you'll be, or in God, you'll be blessed. Say, um, I don't know, but speaking of financial, tithing. Not that it means we'll be blessed financially, but we'll be blessed in general, right, for doing what? The Bible says God says to do by tithing. Yeah, you'll receive a reward, right? Which doesn't necessarily mean financial. No, no, it means that you'll you'll
2: prosper. I like the word "prosper." It means that you'll prosper, but prosper doesn't mean you'll get a reward. Prosper might be that you get good health, that you live a long life, that you get food every night, right? Right. Right. God is going to look after you if you do what He says,
1: and if you don't,
2: you're you're exposing yourself,
1: which basically means you're. On your own, yeah. You've you've removed
2: yourself <laughs> from yeah.
1: You've removed yourself from God's covering
2: because you have not done what He said. So so you you've gone your own path. He's going to let you experience the result.
1: I feel like it's easy to understand but hard to 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 describe. Um, it's one of those things that it's not. Like I, I I I think I understand what you're saying, but it's hard to put into words. Yeah because uh, it's not a curse it's not like witchcraft or whatnot like oh you're carrying the curse of the ghost of whatever you know like no like i'm going to curse you
2: and in no way shape or form does it mean that elijah summoned bears with some kind of magical superstitious power i mean that's the total opposite what it means is he's saying you are violating god's commands you better be careful because you're going to be punished
1: and then here come some she bears. And then
2: God takes Not it upon himself behalf. to exact that punishment immediately. But I think it's done, from my understanding of the story, it's done to protect the prophet. Mm-hmm. And he was very much in a minority. Not only was he surrounded by at least 42 angry young men that were threatening his life, he had some she bears around too. Yeah. <laughs> But he was also... Just it. It's very possible that he and Elijah, his his mentor, represented the very last people in the entire nation that were true worshipers of the Lord. And so, it, is God going to exact a special protection upon them? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I I would, if I was God, I'd have a, a special interest in making sure that they continue to... to preach the truth to the people around them so when god when you are in the most danger god comes through for you in the in the strongest ways and i think that's kind of the lesson of this story he was in perhaps one of the most perilous situations you could imagine with a visible and active threat against his life and god did something extraordinary to protect him did people die as a result it sure sounds like it but God had a vested interest and a reason for preserving his life. And I think that that's important to note.
0: like before. Oh, my soul. I worship your hope. It's a new day, dawning. it's time to sing your song. we